turn once again to the reading and preaching of God's Word. This evening, once again in the New Testament, we're returning to the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 8. It's a rather short passage this evening, but one I trust will, for you, be full of rich blessing. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, we're reading verses 1 to 4. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God indeed endures forever. Amen. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our God in heaven, as we come to your word once again this evening, we ask that you would bless it. Again, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And with this passage in particular, we pray that you would expose to us the wonderful riches of the glories and the person, the work, Indeed, the very heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, the compassion that he has upon us, the pity that he shows his children. We pray that you would bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, with the exception of four of you that are here this evening, this is my first time meeting all of you, and so you don't know that much about me. But one thing that is a, um, not a super significant part of my history, but when my wife and I moved back down from Chicago back to Royston, Georgia, <clears throat> I, needed, I needed work. And so uh, one of the places that I sought out work and eventually worked there for about a year was Chick-fil-A. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of it. And if you know anything about Chick-fil-A... <clears throat> you know that it's known for two things, uh, good chicken sandwiches and employees who incessantly say my pleasure at everything. And in fact, even though I haven't worked there in, I don't know, three and a half years or so, I still have a hard time not saying it when I open the door for someone and they say thank you, I just kind of, by habit, my pleasure. I try not to say it because as soon as I say it, they're like, oh, you work at Chick-fil-A. Uh, they, they don't ask me if I did, they just, uh, they just assume that I did, and in that case their assumption is right. <clears throat> but the best explanation I ever got about why saying my pleasure is uh, in, in uh, some sense better than saying something like you're welcome actually came from John Piper, and he explained it like this. 
when you say you're welcome to someone, when you do something kind for someone, when you give something to someone, and they say thank you, they express their gratitude, and you say you're welcome, of course that's a perfectly kind and appropriate thing to say, but when you say you're welcome, you're not exactly expressing or saying anything about the state of your heart when you help them. You can say you're welcome and have no affection and in fact give no thought to the person you're saying you're welcome to. But what does it do to someone when you help them and they say thank you and you say my pleasure or perhaps the more fuller expression it was my pleasure. What does I say to them? If it's sincere to say it was my pleasure to someone is more of a, it's more than just a formality. It's more than just a social nicety that we say uh, by habit and by rote. When you say something like that, it lets the person know that what you did for them was more than just a mere act. It was more than just an obligation. But that you actually took pleasure. It actually pleased you. It made you happy to help that person. It expresses something of your heart, your willingness and your eagerness to help them. And it's, and it's really more meaningful, isn't it, when somebody gives you assistance and you know that they were willing and eager to do so. They didn't feel, they didn't feel obliged, but they actually wanted to. And it gave them, indeed, great happiness to do so. And saying something like, my pleasure, can be just a small reminder that such is the case. But one of the reasons why I love the Gospels in particular, of course, um, the pious thing to say is that I love all the Bible, and of course I do, but I love the Gospels in particular more than because they tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Of course, that is a significant and wonderful part of them. And it's more than just the awesome stories of miracles and healings that we see. It's more than the heart-penetrating teaching of one who spoke of his own authority of course, all these things are quite wonderful, but what I love about the Gospels is that we get little stories, just like the ones that we just read in Matthew 8, where we get to peer into the very heart of our Savior, when we actually get to see what was at the core of his being as the God-man. We get to see what drove him, what thrilled him, and in fact, he is still the God-man. He's in heaven. These things still drive him. These things still thrill him. These things still motivate him. And we get to look at these things, if only in just a glimpse. Our church is going through the Gospel of Luke in the evenings right now, and this has been such a great blessing for me because Luke in particular is full of these kinds of stories where we see the compassion and the, the pity and the love that Jesus Christ has for even the most wretched of people. And we have such a story right here in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 and 4. We have a very simple narrative. Of course, there's not much by way of story here. It's not very long. But what we have here is we have the heart of Jesus Christ portrayed in living color before us, even in just a few words. And so in this little sliver of Jesus' life and ministry, we're going to see, and this is, just, this is the theme of the passage that I want to lay before you this evening, we're going to see that what makes Christ such a glorious Savior is the fact that he is a willing Savior. 
What makes Jesus Christ such a glorious and wonderful Savior is that he is a willing Savior. And so as we unpack this theme this evening, we're just going to divide this text uh, essentially in half. We're going to look at each side of the short little plot here. We're going to see first a desperate man. And then secondly, we're going to see a willing Savior. Again, what makes Jesus Christ such a glorious and wonderful Savior is the fact that he is a willing Savior. And we're going to see this, first of all, by looking at this desperate man. Looking at verses 1 to 2 here. We have this historical situation set up here in verse 1. If you don't know anything about the flow of Matthew, you know that coming out of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has just finished preaching the greatest sermon ever preached, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. And this is arguably a high point in Jesus' ministry. You see there in uh, chapter 7, verse 28, where it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, when he ended the sermon, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, Jesus had an inherent authority. The rabbis, even today, just as much as in Jesus' time, when they taught on something, they quoted this rabbi and that teacher and that commentary to establish the authority of what they're saying. But Jesus didn't do such things. He was one who spoke of his own authority because it was inherent to him as the God-man. And the people were astonished at this. And so now we have Jesus descending the mountain, and the text says that he is followed by great multitudes. And we're not told exactly why, other than just that general comment that they were astonished at his teaching, but we're not told exactly why these people were motivated to follow Jesus as a crowd. Surely there was a mixed bag of motivations. Perhaps some were just curious. Who is this man that has come on the scene out of nowhere, this carpenter's son? I want to see who this is. Some of them were perhaps bored and maybe there was nothing to do. The fishing wasn't good that day and so they just decided to follow the crowds and see what was going on. Perhaps there were some who were sincerely interested, who were pricked to the heart by this man's teachings. There were any number of reasons these people were following Jesus off the mountain. But at this point, we're confronted by a new character. And in the midst of these crowds, we are given that common word in the New Testament, that word, behold, where the writer is cluing us in into something sudden that's happening. Some translations even say, immediately, this man, as it were, frantically approaches Jesus. We can almost see him uh, shoving through the crowds to get to this man, Jesus. And it's clear that he's desperate to see him. And the the reason is very clear in the text. This man is a leper. He has leprosy. It's a desperate situation. And we read here in verses 1 to 2 that he approaches this man, Jesus, and he falls before him. He knows his condition. He knows that he's a social outcast. He knows that Nobody in their right mind would come up to him, certainly not speak to him. We'll get to that more in just a moment. But he approaches Jesus, he falls on his knees before him, and he makes a request. He says, Lord, if you are able, or if you are willing, you can make me clean. I want to pause here just a moment because this, this part of the passage here teaches us It teaches us a few things about what it means and what it looks like to approach Jesus, to come to Jesus for our needs. 
We see, first of all, that approaching Jesus requires recognition. It requires a recognition of who Jesus is. And there are a few things that this leper recognizes about Jesus. The first thing the leper recognizes about Jesus is his deity. He recognizes his deity, his godness. Most translations, or I shouldn't say most, but many translations say that the leper came and simply knelt before him. But the New King James, which I read from just a moment ago, I think is undoubtedly correct. When it says worship, he fell down and worshiped him. Now the Greek word, of course, uh, can mean kneel, but I think it's fairly clear from the context that this man recognized that Jesus was no ordinary man. There was something special about this man, Jesus. In fact, this man is divine. For one thing, this man uh, addressed Jesus by the Greek word kyrios, Lord. This is the Greek word that was used in the Greek Old Testament to address Yahweh, God himself. Now, of course, this isn't a slam dunk proof. We see in other parts of the New Testament where kyrios is used uh, in a similar fashion in how we say sir today. But at the same time, it's clear, at least to me, that this man knew, and he was using this term deliberately to refer to the deity of Jesus Christ. It's a clear term that refers to God himself. But more importantly here, this man spoke freely of Jesus' ability to heal and to make clean. You see, leprosy today even more so in those times, especially so in those times. Leprosy was not the disease that you could just put hydrocortisone cream on and call it a day and be done with it. It wasn't something that you could just uh, cure willy-nilly. Leprosy was a serious disease. In many cases, it was a, a terminal illness. You live with it for the rest of your life. And this man, as he approached Jesus, he confessed Jesus' ability to heal at will, at the mere expression of his speech, the exercise of his will. He knew that Jesus could heal him. Now, I've never gone to a doctor and said, look, if you just exercise your will, you can heal me of the flu. Because I know that that's a, that's a characteristic only, of, only that God possesses. And this man simply said, if you are willing... You can make me clean. So this man saw Jesus for who he really is, God in the flesh. And so the first thing we see here is that, just to be clear, uh, no one can approach, no one can approach Jesus without recognition of who he is. First of all, as the God-man. There's no such thing as approaching Jesus as merely a good man or merely a good teacher, although he was most certainly and is most certainly both of these things, is the only good man, the only good teacher. But so many today will say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he was God. In fact, if you look, uh, Ligonier does a, uh, a, a survey every year. I can't remember what they call it. It's like the state of, the state of theology or something like that, where shockingly, people who profess to be evangelicals actually question the deity of Christ. Uh, you can't approach Jesus without recognizing who he is as the God-man. You either have a divine Savior, 
or you have no Savior. And so this man recognized Jesus' deity, but he also recognized Jesus' ability. There's no question that this man would not have approached Jesus with such force had he not already beforehand believed something about Jesus' absolute ability to heal him. A few weeks ago, I had, uh, I had some car trouble. Uh, my, my wife's car was, uh, was losing oil uh, very rapidly. It was, just, it was just falling out of the bottom of the car. And when I was thinking of who to call, uh, I didn't call the children, any of the children in my church. Uh, I called someone uh, whom the winters here know very well, someone who I knew had mechanical expertise. I approached them knowing that they could help me. And I knew they were able to help. Well, this man, it was the same way. He also confessed as much. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can. You are able. And so this man approached Jesus with no question. This man is able to do what I need him to do. If you are willing, you are able. You have the power to make me clean. You see, those who don't come to Christ don't come, when you get down to the bottom of it, simply because they don't believe he is able to do what he says. Whether it's forgive sins, whether it's to deal with diseases, or sadness, or sorrow, or pain, or depression, they don't come to Jesus with these things, ultimately because they don't believe that he can do what he says he can do. But he's not who he says he is. But if you think about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Those who come to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But I doubt that anyone in here, in this room, questioned Jesus' ability. Just as this morning, I, I doubt anybody confesses that they or believes that they have no sin. I doubt anybody in here says, I don't, I don't think Jesus is able to do these things. No, for many of us Christians, what many of us doubt is not Jesus' ability, but what we often question is Jesus' willingness. Jesus' willingness to make us clean. Jesus' willingness to take on our burdens and our sorrows. We're certain that Jesus can heal and can make clean and can save and can sanctify. We're certain about this, but we wonder, is he willing? And in many cases, we're certain that he's willing for other people, but we doubt that he's willing for us. And so this man here, he approaches Jesus, he confesses his deity, he recognizes his ability, and then finally, he does recognize, I believe, Jesus' willingness to heal him. Because after all, why approach if you don't believe he's willing? I want you to notice the conditional clause here. The man says, not if you are able, but rather if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so for this leper, whether or not Jesus would heal him or to make him clean hinged upon Jesus' willingness. If Jesus was not willing to heal him, he would not be healed, and he knew that. And he's right. Jesus is able to heal anyone. He's able to save anyone. He's able to forgive every sin. But those whom Jesus does not will to heal. 
or to save or to make clean will not be healed, will not be saved, will not be made clean. And so in other words, this leper recognized in approaching Jesus and in saying what he said, he recognized that he was utterly dependent upon the mere grace of Jesus Christ for what he needed. That he was entirely at the mercy of this man's will. Utterly dependent upon his grace. And you see, the fallen human heart does not want to recognize this. You and I, in our natures, we don't want to recognize this. We don't want to confess this. We want to be able to contribute something, to offer something in exchange for our souls, in exchange for what we need. We want to be able to say, well, I had, I had some part in this. We may never say that with our mouths. But we often believe it. This man knew he had nothing to offer. Which means that he not only needed to recognize Jesus for who he was, but he also needed to approach him completely by faith. And so approaching Jesus requires recognition of who he is, but we see also that approaching Jesus requires faith. And I want to emphasize that. Approaching Jesus requires faith full stop. Not faith plus. It requires faith. Now, of course, there is a place in the Christian life for works. True faith leads to good works. But approaching Jesus requires faith full stop. It requires faith, not preparation. As we look at this man, we, we, we don't know what the condition of this man's uh, mental state is when he's coming to Jesus. We don't know what kind of thoughts he has. We have no record of any premeditation or a forethought. We only see him burst onto the scene and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. There's no preparation here. There's only faith. Indeed, he knew he was helpless. He knew he was a leper. He knew he was the lowest of the low and that there was nothing he could do to prepare himself to come to Jesus. There was absolutely nothing he could do. And so approaching Jesus requires faith, not preparation. It also requires faith, not perfection. Not preparation, not perfection. Both this man's person, certainly his person, he was a leper. But also his faith were imperfect. He was already at the lowest possible point. He could not get worse. He knew he had nothing to lose. But this did not deter him because he did know he had everything to gain. Approaching Jesus requires faith. Not preparation. Not perfection. And not performance. Again, this man had nothing to offer. He knew that he could not fulfill the smallest iota of the Lord's commands in and of himself. And in fact, his leprosy was really a symbol of that. He knew that his only hope was to cast himself before Jesus' mercy. His faith, not works. Again, just to go back, I quoted Augustus Toplady uh, this morning. If you think about uh, Rock of Ages, that hymn that I quoted this morning, in another line he says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. I wonder if 
top lady was thinking about this leper when he wrote that line. That was exactly the state of this man. This man understood the reality of his situation. He knew that he was diseased and helpless, undesirable, filthy, having absolutely nothing to offer. But he knew where to find help. And the question I have for you this evening, the question I want you to ask yourself, is how many of you view Jesus the same way this man did? Because I want you to understand that what you believe about coming to Jesus, whether or not you need to fix yourself or to reform yourself or to clean yourself up before you go to Jesus, whatever you believe about coming to Jesus reveals really what you believe, not about yourself, but about him. If you think that you are too dirty to come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the cleansing of your soul, it sounds pious and humble, does it not? But it's actually not a confession of your own filth, it's a confession of Jesus' inability. Or if you're perhaps hesitant because you think you're not worthy to come, or perhaps you've sinned too greatly to come to Jesus, it's not a, it's, it's not a confession of what you believe about yourself, it's a confession of what you believe about Jesus. What you believe about coming to Jesus reveals what you believe about him. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I want to emphasize there is so much liberty. There's so much liberty in resigning yourself to the fact that there is, there is nothing you can do to improve your state before the Lord. There's nothing you can do. There are no amount of good works. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says that even our, even our righteousness, even our best works are as filthy rags before the Lord. There is nothing you can do, brothers and sisters. And there's so much liberty in that. The world looks at that doctrine and says, that's a disgusting doctrine. I don't want to believe that about, about my, my, uh, my fellow human beings. But what they don't realize is that's bondage. To believe that you are better than what you are. But there's great liberty in knowing that there's nothing you can do and there's nothing you can offer to Jesus. That's why I cannot for the life of me figure out why people hate the doctrine of free grace. The opposite is just bondage. It's as if people read at the end of Revelation when, it's, when the Spirit and the Bride say, Come and, and, and take water and buy without, without money and without price. It's like they, they don't believe it. That, it's, that salvation can be truly free. But it is. And part of realizing that, that the freeness of the gospel is realizing that you have nothing to offer. You have no money to buy. This man knew that very thing. He understood this. He had nothing to offer, and so he falls on his face before Jesus. And so we see this desperate man, which leads us immediately into a willing Savior. And that's our second point this evening, a willing Savior, as we look at verses 3 and 4. Here we have, as it were, the next scene in this little account. The leper has made his plea to Christ. He's cast himself utterly at Christ's mercy. And I imagine that in this interaction, the wait between the leper's words and Christ's words were probably not long, but I wonder in the mind of this leper whether or not the, the wait was excruciating for him to see, what is this man going to say to me in reply? What is he going to do to me? And of course, Jesus, I'm sure, didn't think about his response. 
But the sad thing here is that as we read this, as we read this short little story, the sad thing is that we, even we Christians, are often so unsurprised, we are unshocked by Jesus' response that we simply don't have the reaction that we ought to have. What Jesus does here is actually shocking. It's astounding what he does here. I want to read verses 3 and 4 again just to have the text back in your mind. Here's verses 3 and 4. So the leper has come to Jesus and says, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. That was Jesus' reaction. And we are often so unsurprised by that. It's a very sad thing. But we see here two things. We see, first of all, that Jesus is a willing Savior. Again, there's a couple of things right here that ought to strike us with absolute astonishment. I'm going to take what happens in, in reverse order here. I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus spoke to the leper. He spoke to him. At this point in time, lepers were social outcasts, often had to live in colonies outside the city. If they were to ever come into the city to buy food or whatever, they had to cover their mouths and cry, unclean, unclean, let everybody know of their presence so that people could stay away. Certainly nobody got near them, much less spoke to them. But Jesus spoke to this man. Most people would have, if, if they saw a leper, and in fact, I can't speak for you all in here, but I'm sure, I mean, I've seen pictures of leprosy online. If, if, a, if a leper comes up to me and comes running up to me, my first reaction is probably to step back. Hopefully, by God's grace, I wouldn't run away. But most people at this time would have fled. They would have been taken aback in revulsion that a leper would approach them. But Jesus speaks to him. He interacts with him. But more amazingly, the text says he actually reaches out his hand and he touches the leper. He touches him. If you read the law uh, in the first five books of the Bible, if you read Leviticus, for example, it has all of these regulations about how to deal with lepers. You're not to touch a leper. If you touch a leper, you risk contracting the disease. You're certainly ceremonially unclean. You have to go through all of these washings and ceremonies to be admitted back into the ability to worship God as you should. But Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches this man. And in this one simple action, there's so much in these few words. Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the leper. There's so much going on here. We see Jesus' compassion, first of all. We see Jesus' great compassion. Mark and Luke uh, tell the same story and they add a few words here. Uh, Mark and Luke say this. Jesus, having compassion on him, reached out and touched him. You see, Jesus' compassion consists in his willingness to take upon himself what did not belong natively to him. And he did that with this leper. He reached out and he touches him. For anybody else, it would have been a great risk. A risk contracting this foul disease and risk alienation from the community. But Christ did this with this leper. And Christ also did this same thing in a much greater degree when he took on human flesh. 
You read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where the writer says, In all things, Christ had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. You see, in taking on human flesh, Jesus essentially, it was a cosmic version of him reaching down to the filthiest of the filthy, to the dirtiest of the dirty, reaching out and touching human flesh. And so in this one little action by Jesus on account of this leper, we see his great compassion. And we continue to, to, to see this compassion all throughout church history as Jesus continues to minister through the hands of his church. If you think about the Middle Ages when uh, the plague struck Europe and wiped out a third of the population of the West. When the plague struck a city, everybody fled to get away. They didn't want to die. But who was it that stayed behind and cared for the sick? Oftentimes got sick themselves and died. Who was it that stayed behind? It was the Christians. It was the pastors. It was the monks. Because by God's Spirit, they were exercising this exact same action that Jesus performs here, showing his great compassion. But we also see his power. That he was able to touch the leper and remain ceremonially clean and remain free of this disease was just a sheer testimony to his deity. Only the God-man could do such a thing. It's also indicative of of his nature that was necessary to be a true and effective Savior. Again, in chapter 4, Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says this, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. The old King James says who cannot be touched with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, Jesus as the compassionate mediator, as the compassionate savior, he is not a savior who just feels sorry for his people. He's not an impotent savior. He feels pity. He feels compassion. But he's also able to do something about it. Even now, he's not just sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, just having pity and compassion on his children, saying, I wish I could do something for them. Even now, he's able, even as much as he is here on earth, he's a willing savior. But we also see that he's a, he's a humble savior. There's a curious ending to this little event, this little narrative account here. Je- uh, Jesus tells the leper upon healing him in verse 4, See that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The same thing occurs in the parallel passages in Mark and Luke. It's a very curious thing. The people read it and wonder, why did Jesus tell this man this? Wouldn't he want people to know about his healing powers? And wouldn't he want his message to go throughout all the land? Why did he tell him not to tell anyone and just to go in secret, offer the sacrifice to the priest as a testimony, and go about your way? Well, I think what's going on here is simple. There's a couple of things going on here. For one thing, for Jesus, his time had not yet come. His ministry had an unfolding process. And at this point, it was early in his ministry. It was not fully public. It had movement. And in telling the leper not to tell anyone, he wanted to maintain this gradual unfolding. 
that he was working on. But even deeper than this, and more fundamentally, I believe, this is an expression of Christ's humility as the Savior. See, Jesus sought not his own attention. He didn't want this man going about and proclaiming what had been done. There would certainly be time for Jesus to be noticed, but not now. Jesus was about the glory of his Father. And so he told the leper, don't go proclaim what's been done. In fact, don't tell anyone. Just, you know what to do. You know the law of Moses. You go and offer your sacrifice as a testimony to them so that God may get the glory. And so even from this miraculous work, Jesus did not seek glory and fame. But again, we get a peek into his heart that he was truly gentle and lowly in heart. What makes Jesus Christ such a glorious Savior is the fact that he's a willing Savior. Just a few closing remarks here. For those of you who perhaps might still be in your sins, who are lost without Christ, children in the room who are considering these things and perhaps haven't made a profession of faith, I want you to listen. Outside of Christ, and in fact, all of us need to, need to understand this, Christian or otherwise, outside of Christ, you are just as this leper. In fact, you're far worse. The leprosy was just an outward symbol of the disease of the sin-ridden heart. Filthy, unclean, helpless, forever cast out of God's, God's presence due to you for your sin. And so our, unless you are made clean, you will perish. And you cannot make yourself clean. There's no amount of good works, no amount of preparation, no amount of reformation that you can do. Even if you could live, even if it were possible to live perfectly from this point on for the rest of your life, you can't make up for what you've done in the past. Unless you are made clean by the blood of Christ, you will be cast out of God's presence forever. That's the grim reality. But the wonderful promise is that Christ stands willing and ready to save you if you come to him in faith. If you simply believe that he is willing and able. But you must come. You must cast yourself at his mercy. You must confess your sins and you must plead for cleansing. And the great promise is, is that if you do this, his promise to never cast a single person that comes to him in faith out. But for those of you here who love your Savior, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, but perhaps struggle with the burden and guilt of your sins, whether present or past, I want to understand this. Your sin is not too much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, God sent his only begotten son for sinners. What does Paul tell us in Romans? He sent Christ. He commended his love toward us in while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners. God didn't send Christ. He didn't commend his love toward us once we fixed ourselves. Once we got to an appropriate level of acceptableness. No, he commends his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Just as we saw this morning, Christ doesn't forgive begrudgingly. He doesn't forgive holding his nose. He forgives freely. He loves to do it. Indeed, it pleases him. It gives him great pleasure. He delights in forgiving sins. It's what he loves to do. He loves to make clean. He saves the worst sinners. And again, the leper here symbolizes the worst of the worst, the filthiest of the filthy, the most wretched of the wretched. Those that feel so far gone that they are beyond help. That's the people that Jesus comes to save. Those who know they are sick and know they need a physician. And so whatever sin you may be dwelling on, however you may be mourning the state of your own heart, Jesus delights in saving such a person as that. The worst of sinners. And he is gentle. I want you to see how he touched the man. He reached out and he touched him and he had compassion on him despite his uncleanness. You see, in the gospel, we, we do see the indignation and the anger of Jesus, do we not? But if you read the gospel accounts, all the anger, all the righteous indignation and wrath that Jesus had in the gospels was only exercised toward people who thought they were good, who thought they were fine. Those who come to Jesus and beg for mercy, he never expressed indignation toward them. Only compassion, only gentleness. Only pity. So for all of you here this evening, I hope you understand and I hope you know what a privilege it is to serve this Christ. So my prayer for you is that you would let this passage draw you ever closer to him and to fan into flame your love for him and to deepen an ever sweet communion with him. Jesus Christ, the willing Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your love that you commended to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It's a marvelous truth and we can say it so easily. We can quote these things. We know these things in our minds, but oh Lord, how slow they are to sink deeply into our hearts. How easily we despair of our sin and of our condition. Lord, we pray that you would teach us just like this leper, to cast ourselves before the feet of Jesus to make no preparation, no perfection, no performance. Indeed, there's nothing we can do for ourselves but to cast our our faces to the ground before him in faith, knowing that he is a willing and an able Savior and that he saves to the uttermost. So we pray that you would strengthen our love for him Increase our faith. Forgive us our sins. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our song of praise. Let's take our Trinity hymnal and let's turn to number 393. Come ye sinners, a very appropriate hymn to sing in response to this passage. Let's stand and sing.
Praise the Lord. Amen.